Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. One of the best privileges doing this podcast affords me, I feel, and I'm hoping this in turn, you feel this as a listener as well, uh, is the chance to get to know fascinating characters from all walks of life. And I have to say today's guest really surprised and entertained me so much. I confessed at the end that he's actually one of my favourite guests so far. I often think that when I've had a great conversation with someone because I am buzzing, but he really is Uh, up there with my favourite guests. I really enjoyed this conversation and I really hope that you do. Please feel free, by the way, to get in touch with me. I don't have an email address on the website, but I am on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as The Big Travel Podcast and also as me, Lisa Francesca Nand. And I do really love hearing from people and I'm always happy to reply. So do feel that you can reach out. Yes, like the four tops, uh, if you fancy. The Big Travel Podcast is proudly sponsored by WeCure, the leading health tourism provider in the UK. WeCure connects people who are after dental treatments, aesthetic procedures and social and mental well-being with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. And we have an exclusive offer for you. Uh, head to wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast to find out how. If you book a treatment, you can take a friend with you to Turkey completely free if you use our offer. WeCure turns your treatment into a relaxing holiday. That website again, wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast and now on to today's guest charles spencer best-selling author and broadcaster has a superb talent for bringing history to life his new book the white ship explores england's worst ever maritime and royal disaster a tragedy that changed the course of european history forever From childhood trips to an unknown Ibiza, friskings at the Iron Curtain-era Russian border, to covering everything from Cannes to Cairo as an NBC News reporter, the late Princess Diana's younger brother has fascinating travel tales, not least those starting in Althorpe, the grand estate the Spencer family have called home since 1508. Charles Spencer is on The Big Travel Podcast. So I think a, a, a good place to start is the white ship, because, of course, it is a, a story of, of travel very much. And I do believe it begins 900 years ago with an event that had a very long lasting legacy. Yes. So the white ship was the finest uh, vessel of its day. It was rather like the Titanic. And um, Henry I, who is a rather obscure king now, but he was the youngest son of William the Conqueror, uh, reached the Norman Harbour of Barfleur. And, and you know, when you think about travel, 
you had to wait for a wind in the right direction. And Barflower was the perfect launching pad for journeys straight up north to Southampton. They take about 10 or 12 hours. And the king set off in one ship and he put all his most treasured possessions, including his treasure actually, but also his uh, only legitimate male son, Prince William, and various other children, the leading men and women of his court, great generals and everything, on the white ship. But as we all know, you know, it's not a good idea to be intoxicated when driving. And the helmsman and all of the crew were drunk. They were so excited to have the prince on board that they joined in the revelry before setting off. And in the middle of the night of the 25th of November, 1120, so pretty much exactly 900 years ago, this incredibly important great ship with an unbelievable passenger list uh, set off into the dark. But the helmsman misjudged the speed they were going and they hit this huge rock called the Key Berth Rock off the Norman coast. And everyone died apart from a butcher. And he's my eyewitness. It's a true story. It, It sounds like fiction, but it's true. And it meant in the end... Um, that Henry I struggled. He was a very fertile king. He had 24 children, but he didn't have a legitimate male heir. And it meant that he spent the next 15 years of his reign trying to have another uh, male son in wedlock. Didn't manage that. And it ended with, on his death, 19 years of civil war and then a totally different dynasty, the Plantagenets taking over. So yeah, it was very dramatic. So what a long-lasting legacy, just because some drunk sailors decided to uh, to, to get drunk and uh, were carrying the prince and the prince didn't make it. It's just an incredible story. I, I, I like the mindset of the time. So people were very superstitious about traveling on water. It was thought to be an incredibly dangerous place. They didn't know what existed under the water, except, you know, the odd fish or whatever. And if you see the, the maps of the time, of the, of the sea, they, they show sort of incredible sea creatures, sea wolves, sea elephants, sea goats, that they thought were lurking underneath, ready to spring up on the traveller who, who dared to take a, a, a board across a ship, you know, take passage on a ship. And um, it, it was a time of just ignorance, really. Um, and so you were really relying on God to protect you. And some monks appeared to... Uh, thank uh, and bless the ship for taking these passengers. But the sort of drunken oaves on board chased the monks away. And of course, to the medieval mind, that meant that everyone on board had it coming. God's revenge for being rude to his representatives. And of course, that actually turned out to be true, although obviously whether it's God's revenge or not is, uh, is, is questionable. But what, what is your, so this is your seventh book, all of a, a historic nature. What is, um, what was your interest? What sparked your interest for this particular story? Well, I, I, I went to give a speech um, ages ago on this uh, topic uh, in Leeds Castle for a friend. And essentially, I, I, I was talking about the queens of England, and I wanted to talk about one woman who nearly became queen. She's called Matilda, and she was Henry I's only legitimate daughter. And she became his heir once Prince William had drowned on the white ship. But of course, um, you know, the, the medieval mind was prejudiced against women. And, and when he died, everyone decided that instead they would go for one of his nephews, King Stephen, who in a sort of sliding doors moment, he'd got off the white ship before it set sail because he was feeling ill. Um, And I just, I I gave this speech to quite a knowledgeable group of history lovers and they all ended up um, snapping to attention at this rather strange story from the past. And I realized it was a good tale. And then I spotted that the anniversary, the 900th anniversary of this great catastrophe was coming up 
this autumn. And um, the publishers thought, wow, well, we can hang this dramatic tale on an anniversary and, and give it a go. So that's what I did. Poor Henry I, he's kind of been shadowed by other Henrys. Why do you think that is? Uh, about history, I suppose that's quite a deep question. And as an, an historian yourself, is why we choose certain parts of history to focus on. I mean, the one thing I remember from my history GCSE is Henry VIII's wives and how they, their, their names, their order and how they all died. I know very little about Henry I. Well, nobody does. So, I mean, nobody, uh, I'm 56, so I don't think anyone younger than me ever had the full gamut of history history teaching. You know, when I was at school, history was a compulsory subject. So you, you got the full lot. And, um, but Henry I has dropped off the radar. You know, he's no longer of interest, which is a great shame. You know, he was an incredibly impressive king. Um, he sorted out England and, and settled it after the Norman conquest. And he invented the Exchequer. You know, we still live with the Chancellor of the Exchequer running our finances. And, and that was all established by Henry I. And he was an incredibly successful king. And I have to say, you know, part of the reason is he's just not fashionable. The, the early 12th century has dropped off the radar in terms of historical teaching. Now history is an optional subject at schools. You're quite right. I mean, teachers dangle Henry VIII or Hitler to try and get an audience. And, and Henry I is wrongly forgotten. That's why, actually, that's one of the things I try and do is all of my books, I try and bring back things which I think, wow, they were fantastic tales in their own right. Because of fashion in historical teaching, they've been forgotten. And let's bring them back to the, the public. Because I can tell you, if I'd written about the white ship 100 or even 200 years ago, people would have, would have rolled their eyes in boredom. It's one of the great hackneyed tales of those times. Everyone knew it. Winston Churchill, when he was doing his history of the English-speaking people, he devotes a couple of pages to it. And, and he apolog everyone apologizes for bringing it up yet again. But now, yeah, it's, it's, it's forgotten. But also when you say uh, that it would have, people would have rolled their eyes, the reviews, I haven't read your book and I, I will set about doing that now, um, but the reviews are stunning and they say that it, it's, a, it's an incredible tale and you bring it to life with such, um, with such characters and, and really you know, bring, bring those old characters and that story to life. So, um, well, thanks, Lisa. So well, that's, what, that's the sort of history I, I try to write. So it's wonderful if, if reviewers recognise that. So I am not an academic. Yes, I have a degree in history and I was lucky enough to go to Oxford. So I have a sound base and, and grounding in history. But to me, history is about characters and people and bring, exactly that, bringing them back to life and bringing back these tales. And I spent 10 years as a foreign reporter for one of the American networks in the mid 80s, and mid 90s. And the one thing I learned was when I was writing my scripts, you have to write to picture, you have to bring alive the imagery of the tale. And that's what I try and do because, you know, there's, there are a lot more erudite people who could give you a, a crusty, dusty version of what happened in Henry I's reign. But what I wanted to do was bring it all, you know, when I, when I look at a king's reign, I'm not going to do A to B in a boring biography. I'm just not going to do it. So um, the, the last book I did, I basically gave the story of Charles II in a, a six-week true tale of him on the run for his life after the Civil War. And then again with Charles I before that, I looked at his reign through the prism of the hunting down of those men who were responsible for his execution. So I take a flashpoint in an interesting monarch's reign and then try and uh, pad it out with true facts and figures, but the figures are human rather than statistics. 
And I'm absolutely fascinated by this stuff. And I want to ask you in-depth questions about how you go about how on earth you go about researching this. You must really immerse yourself into it. But that's not what the podcast's about. It is about the big travel podcast. So you mentioned America. I want to move there in a little bit. I, I physically am not moving there in a, minute, in, a, in a bit. I mean, I want to move there with our conversation. Well, I do would like to move there as well. But that's by the by. Uh, I want to start back a little bit earlier than that, because... Um, you, in fact, your book, you've written very eloquently about Blenheim. And of course, your, your homestead, your, your family homestead is Althorpe. I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to know a little bit about that because it, I've, I've never visited and I really want to go. I, lo- I love the stately homes. Are you, are you there now? Are you there now? I am here right now in my study. Um, and my family have been lucky enough to live here on this estate uh, since 1508, so pretty much from the earlier Tudor times. And yeah, it's beautiful. You know, I went for a walk this morning at 6.30. I've got a puppy, which keeps me up quite a lot. And um, I went for a walk around the lake and around the grounds, and it's just heaven. You know, it's, it's quintessential England. You, you talk about the stately homes of England, and I think they really do preserve Nowadays, more than anything, they're not, they're not bastions of privilege, uh, hopefully not exclusively that. Um, they contribute to tourism or heritage, you know, preservation of heritage, not, not just family heritage, but national heritage. And you're right, you know, the, the number of travellers who come to the UK who put visiting the historic houses of England as one of the main reasons for coming here is, is really illuminating. And if you think about how other countries have handled their heritage. They've not been able to preserve what we have. So for instance, we know, you know, in France, if you go around a private chateau or whatever, there's very little in it because of the difference in inheritance laws. So because of the code Napoleon, every child has to get an equal inheritance. And although I can understand the reasons for that, what it does mean is you end up with a big empty chateau. And we don't have that here. And, and, and the, the inheritance tax rules have been very uh, well thought out, I think. So as long as you open your house for a set number of days, uh, the, the objects can stay in the house. And, you know, it just it means that we've wrapped up our inheritance quite tightly and, it, and it's there for you know, tourists, travellers to come and see. I was wondering about the chateau. Is that's that's news to me because you know everyone. I, I do know that there are plenty of big empty chateaus, and people seem to pick them up for a relative bargain. People that go to the uh, from the UK to here, so that's that's interesting. But what was it like growing? Oh, you didn't actually grow up there, did you? We used to visit as children. Um, my grandfather lived here until I was eleven, and he was a very imposing figure. Uh, very lucky to have had him in my family because while lots of other families with houses like this were either pulling them down between the wars or giving them away to the National Trust or equivalent. Um, and one actually sold theirs to a Hollywood studio and had it burnt down for the scene of a, one scene in a movie. They burnt it down for the movie? Yeah, just for one, one scene in a movie because there was nothing to be done with these places, it seemed. They seemed to be relics from a different age and people couldn't pay for their upkeep. But my grandfather was determined to keep going, you know, in the... 50s, 60s, 70s, he was battling a, an income tax rate of 98%. But he lived here as a, almost a curator. I've read his diaries. His happiest times were, well, going through old receipts. We know how, when everything in the house was bought, who made it, how much it cost, where it might have been repaired. And, uh, and I think that, uh, 
you know, it was tough to keep these places going, but he sort of manfully soldiered on. But he was very terrifying. So when we came to visit here as children, we were told, don't talk unless you're spoken to. Uh, and he was a frightening figure, but he was also a, a, a man of passion. So when we, when we turned up here, uh, we stayed in the night nursery, I remember, with little candles burning because we were uh, frightened of the dark, us children, and um, night watchmen patrolling the attics. You could hear the footsteps everywhere. It's very frightening. And then the, the very slow tick-tock of grandfather clocks. It was, it was not somewhere that we looked forward to coming to because it was like a museum uh, and one with a very scary man in charge. So, yeah, it was, it was uh, something we put up with as a journey. We, we grew up in North Norfolk, 100 miles to the east, and the trek from North Norfolk to Northamptonshire was always one with a little fear in one's heart. The fear, I mean, I would be terrified in a place like that at night. I'd be, at the daytime, I think I'd be fine. But at nighttime, I'd be wishing my grandparents had a semi-detached in Wolverhampton or something because of the the echoes of the past. And are there, you know, whether people believe in this or not, are there, are there ghosts on the, in the estate? Well, apparently, I'm, I've never seen or, or heard a ghost that I'm aware of here. But uh, there, there's very well documented ghost sightings in one of the bedrooms here. It's called the Oak Bedroom. And um, yeah, I found, I even found a Victorian newspaper cutting referring to it. And I, I had a friend of mine who stayed here with his girlfriend and she was a psychic and she knew nothing of the ghost stories there. And she had seen a ghost who absolutely chimed with the sighting in Victorian times in the most obscure newspaper anywhere. She can't have come across it. So yeah, but he's benign. He is a, um, the ghost, supposedly, if he exists, of a, 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 a groom of the house whose job it was to snuff out candles to make sure there wasn't a fire in the night. Uh, but I think he, the both times that I've heard of him being sighted, he, he, he was just carrying a candle and dressed in a long cloak and sort of wandered into the room and then went out um, without, you know, no chains and wailing and, and severed heads. It was, it was <laughs> relaxed. Nobody wants the severed heads, do they, wafting around their spare room? Funny enough, I'm actually I'm scaring myself, sort of, you know, asking about this, even though I don't necessarily believe it. But I'm sitting here on my own thinking, that does sound a bit. I'm guessing you've got electricity there now, but do you ever find candles mysteriously go out? Well, what have we got? We, we also, we had some um, ladies who worked here from, they happened to be from the island of St. Helena. And I remember they wouldn't go into one of the attic rooms. They just refused because they said they heard... Um, people being killed in there when they went in there. And uh, I couldn't oh work God, out at all. I, I know, but what it was, I, if, I, I don't know, the only connection I can come up with, I researched the use of the room and it was used for the weaponry of the house, sort of swords and spears and things. And I wonder if they, they had picked up on some sort of um, electrical charge to do with the function of those old weapons. I, I don't know. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. It really is. And I can't wait to visit one day. So let's go to let's go to America, as we said we would. Um, you were a reporter um, in, in the States, which sounds like a pretty fascinating job. Yeah, I went straight from leaving university to um, joining NBC News as a, as a reporter. And I was based, I was based all over the place for them, really. But uh, when I was in the States, I was either in uh, New York or in um, Burbank in California, near, near, it was part of LA really. Um, but I traveled the whole time for them. I was trying to work it out. I think I, I worked for them in 30 or so countries during a 10 year period. 
And, you know, I was incredibly lucky. You know, I was in my 20s and 30s and, gosh, what an experience. And in charge of a camera crew and going off, you know, I went everywhere from, I was doing serious stories such as the rise of Islam in Malaysia through to the Cannes Film Festival, which I did a couple of times. And, and um, you know, other things in, in, in Singapore and Hong Kong and New Zealand and all sorts of places through to endless European stories um, and even some in India, Argentina, wherever. So I was very, very lucky. I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time because it was hard work, of course. But travel's always been part of my life. And so imagine being a young man traveling the world and being paid to do so. It was, it was an incredible privilege, really. What stories stand out to you? Is there anything particularly heart-rendering? You must have seen some incredible things. I did. I saw, well, heart-rendering, yeah. I, was, I happened to be in Cairo, when there was a terrible hotel fire. I was not there to cover that. I was covering something to do with the pyramids. But I remember going around there and unfortunately, you know, the, everything had gone wrong that could go wrong uh, in terms of a traveler. So these people were staying in a, the Heliopolis, uh, the Sheraton actually it was. And um, there was a, a large group of uh, tourists to do with the, I think of the fashion trade and the hotel had laid on a sort of Bedouin tent reconstruction. And in the night, the tent caught fire. And that was inside the hotel. The hotel caught fire. It was prefab building. Um, they didn't have sprinklers or anything. And I'm afraid quite a lot of people died. And, and, and seeing them being taken out was harrowing and absolutely appalling, actually. Um, and then through to... I did a piece of the plight of the very poor people living in Hong Kong and following a man who, who, who basically lived in a small cage because that's all he could afford. But he was sending his money back to his family in mainland China. This is a long time ago before they were um, reunified. But, you know, through to, may I say, you know, interviewing Mel Gibson in Cannes Film Festival. So, so really not, not all, I wasn't a hard-edged journalist at all. I, I was a feature journalist who occasionally happened to be in the place where a story broke. Were you living, what city were you living in? Well, I, I, I was all over really. I, I mean, I, I literally, there were, there were months where I didn't have a day off and because and I, I was the youngest, um, I'd always get given the ones people didn't want to go to. And, um, but that was fine. I was up for it. And so I, I wouldn't, I, I suppose I was based out of London, but I was permanently on the move. Um, and really, you know, I, I remember once going to Tonga and that's fascinating because I remember I, I gave a, a speech to camera on the international dateline. And I, I, I had the immortal moment for me of saying on my left, it's Tuesday and on my right, it's Wednesday. Um, and not many people can have two days in the same shot because I was literally on the, on the little dotted line that divides uh, the, the, the two days of the week. Um, but that was great fun. I remember interviewing the King of Tonga, who's a fantastic man, a very, very, very substantial build. Yes. And I was told beforehand, please don't mention his weight, you know, as if I would. And, um, but he did. He was ut utterly charming. And he said, you know, I'm on a diet. And I went, oh, really? You know, I, I obviously looked very surprised at that news. And then he said, and my doctor, he's put me on two yams a day. And I went, oh, right. And he went, he, a huge twinkle and a laugh. And he said, but my doctor doesn't realize that a yam can be six feet long. And I thought that was rather wonderful. 
Um, so really amazing characters like that. He is an incredible man. My dad actually met him. My dad was champion boxer of Fiji. And he met, he, he had a, um, my, my dad is a Fijian, Fiji Indian actually. And he had an audience with the, the king's mother, the queen. Queen, oh, what is her name? I do a podcast with India Hicks and her mother, Lady Pamela Hicks. And of yes. course, Lady Pamela met um, the queen on the, on the Commonwealth the Tour. yes. Yes. Payment with Noel Coward. Yeah. That's right, yes. And, and the famous tortoise as well. I don't. Was the tortoise still alive when you met the king? Absolutely. It was given by Captain Cook or something, wasn't That's it? That's right. The tortoise was given by Captain Cook to the Tongan royal family. <laughs> but the diet... Now, I am not an accurate historian in any way, shape or form. So you will maybe be able to tell me about this or, 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 or mm. not. But um, I read once that the whole of Tonga underneath the king was put on a diet, the whole of the country, <laughs> because one of the, um, one of the snacks that they used to, to regularly have was a, a whole baguette to, to which they would, in which they would put um, ice cream, vanilla ice cream, and then drizzle on top, or probably maybe chuck on top, um, condensed milk, and then sort of eat that as a snack. So they, they put the whole country on a diet, and it might have been at this time when the king was on that diet. And um, I just imagined like people sort of forcing chocolate at the school gates and, you know, all this underhand sort of <laughs> sugar dealing going on. But I, I did well, hear that I the whole nation was on a diet. Tonga is, is a, a, an island nation of um, surprising diet. I do remember that. So there you are, you're in the middle of the ocean and surrounded by amazing fish in the sea. And um, we were given a, a, a sort of banquet uh, by, the, by the royal sort of court, as it were. And we were given deep fried, battered white fish steaks from New Zealand. They thought that was a treat. You know, we, we would have died for anything fresh out of the ocean but that was considered more of a treat i do love it when people go to to places like that and they want to give you your own food or what they think is your own food because my mum the very first time she went to fiji to meet my dad's family and that was a point when they were still living in you know wooden huts and washing clothes in the river and uh, i think it was the late uh, late 60s that they went yes. there for the first time she returned with my dad or she went for the first time and they were all having these fabulous curries and they gave her a bowl of baked beans <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so they probably were giving you that yeah, their version of fish and chips, you know. Exactly, that's it. They thought that's what we wanted. It was very kind of them, you know, when you think of it like that. Uh, so you lived in South Africa for a while. I did. I, so I went to South Africa as part of my job for NBC. And I was based in Johannesburg because I was doing more newsy stories, I suppose. And I really liked it. Of course, I was repelled by the whole apartheid regime. That was appalling. But the, I, I really liked the people I met. I was intrigued by the whole setup. I went into Soweto. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, I went into uh, nearby Swaziland to do some stories there on elephant poaching. And uh, also, I followed this wonderful old Scottish man with the surname of Lindsay, who was appalled that he had found out that his family had grown rich in previous generations through slavery. You know, this is a long time ago, before uh, Black Lives Matter, and, and he just took it on himself to try and pay back the debt. So he went to live in Swaziland, and we followed him going to the King's celebration. Um, and he was dressed as a Klatswayo tribesman with a shield and a spear in his kilt. And um, just an amazing thing for this man. He, I think he'd been a successful lawyer in Edinburgh, come across these family documents, and he'd gone to try and make amends by himself in his old age. 
So anyway, I, I loved South Africa and Southern Africa. And um, every time I went anywhere, I was saying, gosh, this is beautiful, you know, the countryside and all of that. I'm leaving the political thing aside, obviously. And um, people said, oh, if you like this, you should really see the Cape, Cape Town. And then I went on a holiday um, with my then wife to uh, Cape Town. We were both absolutely blown away by it, by its beauty and again, by the people. And uh, ended up going to, we, we'd separated uh, amicably at that stage and we, we went to live there. We decided to take our children and give them five years. I'd always wanted to live abroad for five years because I was so jealous. I, I had a friend who went to live in Central Africa and I thought, wow, he's really benefited from this. And I thought the real gift I can give my children is five years abroad. And so we, we, we went for five years and I lived in Cape Town. And of course, you know, I can write anywhere. So I could write there and I was running the estate by the computer, as it were. And, and it was amazing, you know, the most beautiful countryside. And yeah, what a place. I mean, there is nowhere. Of course, it's got terrible poverty and violence. And I'm not under my, I'm not in any way belittling that. But the, for sheer physical beauty. I remember one day I was doing the school run of my children along the coast of Cape Town. And the glorious mountain range there called the Twelve Apostles was looking stunning in the sunshine. And then the ocean down on my right from the car, and I saw all these porpoises rise out of the sea. And I just thought, wow, this is slightly better school run than sort of edging my way through Northampton. It's funny, isn't it, though, when we travel, I mean, travel is, is so good for, uh, for education and for uh, eliminating or, or helping to eliminate prejudice. But it is interesting when you go places, because we've all been places where you feel a little bit conflicted about their human rights record, their politics. But then to go there nonetheless and to get to know the people and to, to live the life and make a positive difference, I think is so important if you can. It's so true, actually. You, you just reminded me of a trip I did with my stepfather and stepbrother when I was a teenager. And of course, you know, the Iron Curtain was very, very firmly uh, closed at that time. But we had seen a, a travel log by um, the actor Peter Ustinov. And it was about a train journey from Helsinki to St. Petersburg, or Leningrad as it was then. And um, we decided to do it. And just the sheer impossibility of getting anywhere and being followed by agents. And, you know, when we got to the Finnish Russian border, the, the train was almost taken apart because they were searching for contraband or I suppose people being smuggled or whatever one way or the other. And it really was a, an eye opener. You know, it wasn't anything like the travelogue that Peter Ustinov had shown us at all. I mean, okay, the hermitage was fantastic, but the day-to-day -day living was brutally tough for people. Even as a traveller, you passing through, you experience that. You do, and I, and then my, my, I remember my stepfather, who who had been quite heroic in World War Two. Um, he was in mini submarines, and a lot of his friends were were killed. He was very lucky to survive, and um, he was being frisked yet again by some Russian guard, and he came out with the immortal line, "Can you stop that? I was treated better in Nazi Germany." And um, I'm not sure they got that. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, let's not go down this route, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness, we're crossing the border. He's just mentioned the Nazis, you know. <laughs> yes. yes, talking of family holidays, did you, did you travel a lot uh, as a child with your uh, family and siblings? Well, my father wasn't a big... I mean, he loved travelling, but he didn't travel much with us. We lived mainly with my father. I, I remember going to Paris 
with him and two of my sisters, uh, probably in the late 70s. And that was interesting. I mean, it was during a time which most of your listeners will think, you know, so extraordinary, but there was exchange control. So we were allowed to take 200 pounds each when traveling. So that limited what we could do really. And, um, but I, I remember going to Versailles and, you know, interesting food, trying snails for the first time as a child and all of that. And then with my mother, we went abroad once a year uh, in a family group and it was usually fairly standard English stuff, sort of um, the Algarve or whatever. And I'm, but I do remember going to this tiny unknown Balearic island called Ibiza. You know, nobody knew Ibiza then. And being on one of the main beaches there, staying with some friends of hers, and there was literally no one there, no one. And there, was no, there were no facilities at all for tourists. Uh, there was one little shack on the beach. Uh, and I was, whatever, I was eight or nine. I remember falling massively in love with this very beautiful Austrian lady who ran the, uh, the, 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 the well, it was a little cabana, really. Um, but just, I went back with my children to Ibiza about four years ago, and goodness, <laughs> what a change. <laughs> um, it wasn't what I remembered at all. But yeah, I remember that very clearly, because it was so out of the way. And, and when I told people we were going to Ibiza, they, they didn't know what I was talking about. So interesting how things become popular and change. I would have loved to have gone to Ibiza or the Costa del Sol. I grew up on the Costa del Sol and Torremolinos was apparently a beautiful place back in the... I mean, it's, it's got its beauty now still. It, it does. You know, it, I know it's had its bad, a bad rep, but it's still beautiful. People go there for a reason still. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a very well-to-do place then. And the, the beach was straight up to the, the road. You know, there was no sort of main seafront walk and none of all the the, the, the rise hotels and you know it must have been incredible to go to those places back then well i agree and you know when i lived in cape town i obviously cape town is very developed now for tourists but seeing old black and white photographs of really really bustling tourist places like clifton now which is one of the sort of more upmarket areas with beaches etc and there's just sort of 11 houses there you know and, 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 and it is amazing to look back on places before they were discovered by the traveller. And, um, and also, it's funny how places come back into your life. I remember going to Normandy as a child and being stunned by its very simple beauty. And of course, you know, then I was going back there to research my book, you know, because that's where, that's where the disaster took place. So I, I like revisiting places. And do you know what, what was interesting about Normandy? It, it, it's kept its um, beauty. It's not been ruined at all. Yeah, I mean, again, back to the converse, uh, conservation issue. We're talking, luckily, a lot of the, the, the stately homes we're saying that have been conserved here uh, very well. It's, it's. I'm again, I'm very conflicted when you go to some place, and, you know, when you go to a place and you say, "Oh, it's all been built up here," and actually, that is development. So, like, we want the places to stay quiet and beautiful, and you know, tiny little streets and and little old ladies making lace or, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, but for the people who live there, they want the jobs and the development and, and the, the big buildings and everything. So it's, it's interesting. I must say that the most cleverly preserved places I've seen are in Canada, because my wife's Canadian. And every summer, we haven't been able to this summer because they're not allowing non-Canadians in. And my wife's the only Canadian in our family. But um, we go every year to these beautiful lakes north of Toronto, and they are so, they've always been so clever about the restrictions there. 
you know, you can't, you've got these huge, huge lakes, yes. Um, but they're quite low, lowly populated because you, there is a set formula. You know, you own so much lakefront, therefore you can build such and such a square footage of house. You cannot build further than X feet back from there and you cannot build nearer than X feet to the water. So it sounds very sort of um, bossy and restrictive, but it's, it's, it's what it's meant is that you've got, oh, they've got plenty of space, but you've got this sort of wilderness, but it's very civilized as well. It's a, it's very clever if you can pull that off. You need a very, very wide thinking government or state to make that happen. Uh, it's a, it's getting that balance right, isn't it? And so many places do now. And luckily, is that people have an eye on that. Actually, I say that people have an eye on that. But the way people have, uh, travel uh, travel has changed. You know, particularly with Instagram and over tourism uh, has become an issue. But then <laughs> that was months ago. You know, that was last summer. Who knows how the world is uh, is changing now and travel? And certainly, we don't have a problem with over tourism now, do we? That seems to have miraculously vanished due to uh, due to the current situation. One one positive thing from it, maybe I don't know. I think that's right. I think you know. I think, well, look, there's not much that's a plus from this situation. It's been terrible for nearly everyone. But the, the point is that you, you end up with this, at least there's a sort of, people are thinking about what matters. And I must say, I crave the Canadian lakes because they are so peaceful and beautiful. And, you know, after, a, I, I, I've never really taken long holidays, you know, but it's sort of, uh, it's it's the perfect place as a family to go. There's so much for everyone to do, and yet it's very gentle. I mean, it's a perfect climate as well for an English person. I'm very light-skinned English person, and, you know, I can't really, I don't really do well in the blistering heat, but it's just like a perfect summer's day, English summer's day every day. So, yeah, I love it. But, you know, I've I've travelled more adventurously. When I I was young, as a teenager, I, I did two summers in a row with an interrail ticket, um, going around Europe with three friends each time. And that was fascinating, you know, just get turning up at a station. We never had a plan and, right, where are we going to go now? And it could be Istanbul or it could be Dubrovnik or northern Spain, you know. And, and, and I don't know what they cost now, but they were sort of 100 quid and you, you had a month's free rail pass. And, of course, you know, you're always in third or fourth class, but when you're a teenager, who cares? Uh, with a rucksack and and um, and a spirit of adventure and and you know you learn a lot and some of it wasn't much fun. I remember being we were kicked out of a train for some reason. Um, well, from from the main carriages and we ended up in the sort of cattle truck area, uh, and it wasn't much fun. But you know you learn to live with it. It was sort of twenty hours going through Bulgaria and Romania and places on the way to Istanbul. But what a, what an experience! You know, I, as as a man in middle age you know I'd be absolutely horrified to do that but as a teenager I, of course it was uncomfortable but you you learn a lot about I remember looking out and seeing I think it was in Bulgaria all these oxen at, at, at the plow you know they didn't have they couldn't afford tractors and I'm, I'm talking about in the um what would it be the very late 70s and and, and also having to take a squash ball uh, traveling because they didn't have plugs in some of these countries. And, and, and I knew that. So you had to put a squash ball in so to, to make sure you could hold the water in a basin. And just learning things like that was really interesting. It's funny how the discomfort of, the, uh, of travel, because it can be uncomfortable. It's funny how that often sticks out in people's memories as some of the best travel times, the most memorable travel times. So one of my friends found 
some photographs from that time. And, and we, we lived in, um, we, we had nowhere to stay in the north of Spain. There literally wasn't anywhere. So we ended up uh, sleeping in a graveyard. And, you know, I managed to, we hadn't got much money. And I, I remember, you know, we were fishing and just trying to survive. And then we bumped into four huge and much older than us, uh, Australian tuna fishermen who were kind enough to buy us a meal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the people you meet as well as the cultures you meet that, uh, that make travel so fascinating, especially on no budget at all. Honestly, I could chat to you all day, but I'm aware we don't have all day. So I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music, because I believe that music and travel go very much hand in hand. And I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a particular or a memorable time and place of travel. What is that song and what is the memory associated with it? Yes, um, it's a song by Supertramp, which ages me very, very much because they were very big in the mid to late 70s and early 80s. I adore Supertramp, so that's a great start. Oh, great. Well, they're, they're, and it's Give a Little Bit, um, which is this beautiful song. And I remember I had it on my Walkman when I was traveling. I was traveling through uh, Kashmir in northern India uh, in the foothills. And I remember it was, you know, so this would have been about 1985. And going into places where the, the, the kids in the villages, they, they'd never seen a Walkman, of course. And I remember p- putting uh, Give a Little Bit on and letting these children in this village listen to a Walkman, you know, with little headphones on. And it was like magic. You know, they put on this little bit of wire and metal and they were hearing uh, my favourite group. So that's, that's what my main memory would be. Charles, you've been one of my favourite guests ever. You really have. I could talk to you all day, but I can't. So thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thanks, Lisa. It's been an enormous pleasure for me too. Thanks very much indeed. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Charles as much as I did. He has such a brilliant way of telling a story. Thank you so much for listening. Like I said, do feel free to get in touch. I'm on all the social media channels as Lisa Francesca Nand and also as the Big Travel Podcast. We'll be back very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.